Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 99 of The Crux of the Story. This is Gary Sheffer, and I'm a professor of public relations at Boston University's College of Communication. I'm here with co-host Mike Fernandez, Chief Communications Officer at global energy company Enbridge. Hello, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing well. I, I, I talk to you more than I talk to my family. This is uh, well. That's you know, sad. Episode, that it is sad. Episode ninety nine. So uh, uh, we're gonna try to do something special for episode one hundred next week. But the way we plan things, we don't know what yet. So stay tuned. Well, we're for, looking uh, forward to it, but we're also looking forward to episode ninety nine. And we have a a, a dear friend, uh, someone who I've actually known. Geez, probably now. I hate to say it, Sally, 40 years. I was thinking the same thing this morning. It's been a long time. You were the press secretary for the senator I worked for. Unbelievable. We were kids. We were? Wow. We were. Wow. Well, obviously, uh, our, our guest is Sally Sussman, who is the executive vice president and chief corporate affairs officer at Pfizer. And we're going to talk to her about her new book and the pharmaceutical industry and some other things going on uh, in our industry and in the world. Let me just briefly introduce Sally, although most of our listeners clearly know, know Sally. You have a very broad role at Pfizer, one of the world's most important companies. I don't think that's an overstatement. She leads engagement with all of Pfizer's external stakeholders, overseeing communications, corporate responsibility, global policy, government relations, investor relations, and patient advocacy. Before joining Pfizer in 2007, Sally held several senior communications and government relations roles at the Estee Lauder companies and at American Express. Earlier in her career, she spent eight years in government service. Mike, that must be where you guys ran into each other. Absolutely. Focused on international trade issues. She is co-chair of the board of the International Rescue Committee and impressively a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And with all of that, Sally has found time to write a book. It's called Breaking Through, Communicating to Open Minds, Move Hearts, and Change the World. And it's out on March 28th. Sally, welcome to The Crux. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.com. Dot org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Thank you so much, Gary. It's great to be here with you guys. So, so let's start a little broadly and then move into your book. And I specifically want to talk about the industry you work in. You know, historically, pharma has been one of the least trusted industries globally, in part because of the cost issue of the medicines and therapies that you produce. However, we've, we've seen the industry's reputation, including Pfizer's, rise following the COVID pandemic and the development of life-saving COVID vaccines. And just last week, Eli Lilly pledged to cap insulin costs for patients at $35 a month. Sally, can you tell us how you think and how Pfizer thinks about public perceptions 
of the industry today? Sure. I mean, of course, we think about it all the time. And 15 years ago, I came to Pfizer because of the conundrum that these companies make life-saving medicine, and yet their reputations were so low. And I had come from two great companies, American Express and Estee Lauder, both of whom had pretty soaring reputations, Mm -hmm. and they do wonderful things, but I assure you it's not half as complicated as trying to discover, develop, deliver medicine on a global basis. So full of bravado and probably too much ego, I came to Pfizer 15 years ago, certain I could fix that problem. might take me a year or two, Gary, but um, (laughs) I worked hard on it for more than 10 years with very, maybe a tiny bit of success, an inch or two in the right direction, but nothing significant. And then three years ago uh, to the month, the world was hit with a global pandemic. Pfizer had a new CEO, my boss, Albert Borla, refreshed purpose statement, breakthroughs that change patients' lives, and we decided we were going to go for it. And Albert announced to the world that we would bring forward a vaccine in eight months, something that usually takes 12 years. And we went on this odyssey and we delivered. And today, Pfizer has, for two years in a row, ranked in the top 10 of Fortune Magazine's most admired brands. Our reputation scores and trust scores are are very high right now. So it's an important moment uh, for the company, but I also think it's an important moment for the industry. And you referenced what we've seen with some other biopharmaceutical companies and their decisions around insulin, which I think are terrific and should be applauded because essential to the long-term maintenance of this improved reputation, we'll be answering for the public some of these deep and important questions about medical affordability and patient access. And Mm -hmm. we can dig into that more as we go, but I I think those are the key elements. and Sally, can you just, as you've talked to externally, how people have responded to the development of the vaccine and sort of record-breaking time, how do people inside the company, it's so important these days, culture and sort of morale, What what's the feeling inside Pfizer now? Oh, thank you so much for asking. 85,000 people feel really proud, very, very proud of what the company did, of how we did it by not taking any government money, going it alone, vis-a-vis the, you know, government intervention. Right. We, had a wonder, we had a wonderful partner in BioNTech. I'd like to tell you guys that early in this journey, I decided to do something pretty radical from a communication standpoint, and I embedded a documentary film crew from wow. Nat Geo and two very smart reporters from the Wall Street Journal. And even though we were working remotely, we still had people in the lab, we had people in the plant. And these uh, journalists are in, in these spaces, interviewing our scientists, interviewing our CEO, listening in on meetings. And I remember vividly the day we found out that we were waiting in the conference room to find out whether or not the vaccine worked. And the Nat geo film crews there. And all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, what have I done? I'm, I'm, I'm recording the greatest debacle of, of you know, corporate life. And then I, I realized if we failed, 
my problems and the world's problems would be bigger than an embarrassing video. But I raised this story because the real reason I did it uh, was for the employees. Because I knew if we were successful, and I hoped we would be, that this would be the most important story we'll tell for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. And that in our roles as chief communicators, we're also the chief documentarians of our company and try to archive our most important moments. Just to end this vignette, on the next day when we got up at 6 a.m. to report the news to the world, the Wall Street Journal you know, had pages and pages on, in, in their print edition with the headline, Pfizer's vaccine, crazy deadlines and a pushy CEO. Okay. And it was so true. You know, it was these Uh audacious expectations of ourselves that changed everything. You know, we didn't say we were going to do it in eight years instead of 12 years. We said eight months instead of 12 years. And we have this incredibly dynamic CEO who is himself a scientist and a visionary business leader. And when he had to assign a project manager in Pfizer for the vaccine, he did something I've rarely seen in corporate America. He he chose himself. And I think that made all the difference. Wow. Great story. Wow. Yeah. And think about the story. Let, let's turn a little bit more to the book. At the beginning of, of the of the pandemic is when the book opens. Uh, you describe the breakthrough moment. You begin to see that Pfizer could play a role in ending the pandemic. Take us from that moment now and the ultimate rollout of the vaccine, because I think the challenge of all of these things that end up being spectacular is there's a tendency to think of them as a straight linear line. And I know that uh, it rarely is. So true. And this vaccine and the rollout was anything but linear. Linear is the way we used to do things. You know, we'd think about it and then we might look for a partner or try in our own labs to create and discover and develop a vaccine. We might then think about fielding some clinical trials. We'd consider our our plan for regulatory review. We'd begin reconfiguring our manufacturing lines, start to buy raw materials. In this case, we did it all at once. We started the communications at the beginning as well. So for example, when we begin a clinical trial, normally our protocol for the trial, the the rules and ways in which we do it, is a pretty closely held secret. I mean, this is intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And together with our scientists, we decided to post it on our website, post the Pfizer COVID clinical trial protocol on our website. And this was unprecedented. But the times called for something different And we knew we were going to be doing something with never used technology, a never before made into a product at a time when people were scared. And that we had to lean in to being the educators of this as well as the company doing it. My boss was on TV almost every day during this period. You know, as I said, we embedded the media. And my biggest fear was that we would create an extraordinary protective vaccine that the public didn't have confidence to take. And so we started doing a lot of message testing, you know, use different form of messages such as 
science will win as, yeah. opposed, to, mm-hmm. as opposed to Pfizer will win, mm-hmm. that our only enemy is the virus and we collaborated differently with companies across the vaccine-making spectrum. And what I personally learned is that I always thought the data would win the day, mm-hmm. but it was the storytelling that won the day. Mm-hmm. And not the, not the storytelling of celebrities or rock stars or sports heroes or politicians so much as the storytelling of grandmas who got to see their grandkids, young college students who got to go back on campus, these kinds of very human, totally real stories told by loved ones, friends, neighbors, was very crucial to building consensus for the vaccine. Unless we forget, I mean, this was highly politicized too, you know, at the time. And and, and so you had lots of people not wanting to take the vaccine for political reasons and, you know, and, and, and concerns that the vaccines were somehow demonic ploys by corporate America. And I mean, just the, the it's like the political landscape was riddled with misunderstanding and misinformation. You came through, which I, I thought it was brilliant, the, the science will win campaign. But can you tell our listeners how that positioning actually came about? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud. Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Of course. I assure you, in March of 2020, as the World Health Organization is declaring a global pandemic, and Pfizer is having all of our employees in China having to stay home, no one was thinking about the U.S. presidential election as we mm-hmm. just, you know, thought about our timelines and our plans. Um, as it turned out, the vaccine clinical trial readout was very close to the U.S. election. And, and conspiracy theories have run amok that we were somehow negotiating with one party or the other about whether this should come sooner or later. And I'll never forget the moment, and I tell this story in the book, of um, because, you know, Mike, you and I are political junkies. I was <laughs> getting ready to watch the first presidential debate between then-President Trump and then-former Vice President Biden, and I'm sitting on my sofa at home, got a big bowl of popcorn, I've got my glass of wine, and I'm, you know, hunkering down for good political theater, when in the first five minutes of the debate, President Trump is talking about Pfizer and that he talked to the boss at Pfizer and we're <laughs> going to have the vaccine before a very special day. And I spilled my wine and spilled my popcorn <laughs> and um, was on the phone with my boss. We, we really didn't want to politicize this. And I, I, that evening, together with Albert Borla, wrote a letter to the editor saying just that that this was medicine, it wasn't politics, and most importantly, that Pfizer moves at the speed of science. And, you know, science is its own thing. I was so embarrassed because over the next 24 to 48 hours, 
no one would publicize my letter. Why? Because the editors I spoke to at the New York Times, at the Washington Post, they wanted us to go direct at the political situation and for see Pfizer sling mud back wow. at the White House. Wow. And my goal was to tamp down the politics. Absolutely. And I realized I didn't share the same goal as the newspaper editors mm-hmm. who wanted to blow more you know, theater, more theater. <laughs> so at the end of the day, I said, well, let's let's reconfigure this as a letter to our own employees making some simple points. Again, we move at the speed of science. We would never cut corners. We don't play politics. We sent it to our colleagues. We posted it on our website. It went completely viral. And all these publications that had snubbed me essentially covered it as news. Um, so I, I learned it. a great trick. Um, and one that I think is good for all of us to remember as communicators. Now we, we really have our own, and you know this, Gary, I've watched your work in this area when, yeah. when you were in business. You can really be your own content machine was something I learned during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, and it's interesting, you know, the, the political polarization is, is still there as we move forward, obviously. And your book closes with a portrait of how Pfizer and other pharmaceutical companies were received after the vaccine. But you also share the story of a colleague who was invited to run for a local school board uh, seat and the backlash that he faced because of the negative perceptions uh, in that community of Pfizer and other pharmaceutical companies due to the vaccine. Uh, Can you share that story? Of course. This guy is Josh Brown of Tennessee, a wonderful member of my team who's in our government affairs area. Very humble guy, soft-spoken, earnest, uh, someone I really admire. And when he told me he was going to get involved with his local school board, I said, great. I love that kind of thing. And then it spun out for Josh and he got caught up in the school board wars, was called out specifically because he worked with Pfizer and people thinking that he would use his seat on the school board to force vaccine on children. And of course, that is untrue and and even factually incorrect. Josh said he would recuse himself from any uh, vaccine or medical-related issues. And in the end, Josh employed some of the ideas I talk about in the book quite naturally because they come to him naturally, you know, to be gracious, Mm -hmm. to be purposeful, even to have humor. Uh, On the last sort of town hall before the election, he took his kids with him and he explained to them as people were yelling and saying things about their dad, that this is the great thing about America. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think that kind of lighthearted attitude helps in all tense situations. And in the end, uh, Josh was elected. But what is sad to me is the the divisiveness does remain. You're right, Mike. I mean, do a lot of polling data and we see that there are extremes that don't see the world in any kind of similar way and who are finding it extremely difficult. So recent polling we did with Edelman showed that some people won't even help a stranger in dis- in who's in yeah. uh, distress if they see think they're someone who feels and thinks differently than they do. Yeah. Well, you know, it, one of the things I'd love to get your idea on, because in, in one sense, I do think that you had this 
breakthrough moment, but part of that breakthrough moment was also using communications tools smartly to lower the temperature, to get your product to market, but did it in a really smart, sophisticated way with the science will win effort. I'm just wondering if you have, as you think about what you went through, are there any key learnings as to how others of us might manage misinformation and disinformation going forward? Boy, this is one of the questions where I th- I think about it a lot and candidly wish I had better answers because I feel that one, ep- one pandemic is past and another has started. I feel that disinformation in particular is, is a serious threat to the country and to the world right now. And I'd like to distinguish between the two because misinformation Mm -hmm. can be innocent. And we saw a lot of misinformation in the pandemic. People, some of whom were scared of clinical trials or scared of the government involvement, have legitimate and longstanding beefs with the healthcare system. We know we saw what happened to African-Americans in the Tuskegee experiment situation. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a lot of people who are marginalized by our existing healthcare system. And that kind of concern and fear, I can work with that all day long. Try to understand where people are coming to, try to meet them at their level, listen. You know, there's lots of good uh, communication strategies to deal with misinformation. Disinformation, however, is quite nefarious. And I am learning a lot about some of the sources of this disinformation, people who are breeding dissension, who are building their own base of power, doing fundraising off the back of lies. This is something that I really feel as a society, we need to come together and address. And those of us who are professional and passionate communicators have such a commitment to trust and to truth that I I think we play a role in solving this. But I don't have the answers here. And I'd love to collaborate with your listeners and with you guys in thinking about what is it we can do here because it's quite undermining. Yeah. You know, it's something, Sally, disinformation that we're looking at carefully at Boston University in our College of Communication. And what can we do, as you say, to build trust, to focus on truth, uh, and to break through to people that uh, may be in a bubble who are susceptible or at least willing to listen to some of the things that you described, people with their own interests, whether it's a government or an individual or a political campaign that are spreading this information and also the platforms that they're using and how those platforms, but that's a whole discussion for, we could do another, we we could do another another hour. (laughs) Well, I want to come back to one thing. I'm teaching crisis this semester at Boston university And and one of the things that students often ask me, Sally, is how do you convince your fellow uh, executives in the C-suite, your colleagues, of a certain strategy or path to follow when something happens that is obviously causing stress in the system? And I'm just curious about the embedding decision. You said you had a CEO with an open mind who, who a straight shooter. How did those discussions go? Sally, mm-hmm. did, was it hard to convince people to let uh, these folks, you know, inside the tent? This is a really important question, Gary. And I get this question in one form or another often. 
how do you garner the credibility to, you know, have have a, not only a seat at the table, but more importantly, a say at the dis- in the discussion. And in terms of the decision to embed, I may have asked forgiveness more than permission on that one. <laughs> but, you know, I also had the benefit of a, of a true, true mega crisis. I mean, yeah. honestly, we didn't even have much time to debate it. The one that was harder to get was the posting of protocols online because there were some entrenched interests in the company Absolutely. against that. But in that case, our CEO was the final arbiter after listening to pros and cons. And I do think it's important on these things to know where does the power and decision maker lie? Who are they? And and also take a decision. Even if the decision had been no, a decision is better than endless debate. But I'd, I'd like to just dig even slightly deeper to talk about what's important maybe when the stakes aren't quite so high and it's more of a common, yeah. if we can call it a common crisis, but we do have common crises <laughs> these days. And and that is some of the things I talk about in the chapter on pitch. And, and by pitch, I know many people think, oh, she's talking about a pitch to a journalist or a, an elevator pitch. I'm not. I'm talking about the way in which we present ourselves, the tone mm-hmm. of voice. It's very important for communicators to sound and be calm, to be not not sound like you're caught up in the crisis yourself or you're nervous or you're spun out. Presenting yourself as thoughtful, measured, these are critical factors in getting buy-in for your ideas. You know, also to, in in the spirit of pitch, to present a way forward Mm -hmm. that you, you feel there is an outcome here. There's, there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you see it. And so that that kind of gets to tone. And I tell the story of Ken Chenault, the CEO of American Express, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And his instinct in working with great communicators like Mike O'Neill, who was my boss many years ago, to know we need they needed to gather people in person at Madison right. Square Garden, that, that Ken Chenault tore up his script and spoke from the heart and waded into the audience and hugged people who were scared and made clear his belief that American Express's best days were ahead of it. And I didn't even, I no longer worked at the company at that time, but I heard about this and I wrote about it and I interviewed Ken because it was an example in what is perfect pitch and what communicators in crisis need to convey to calm the waters and shine a light on the path forward. That's excellent. Such an excellent answer. And I'm going to steal all that from my class tonight. (laughs) You can have it. (laughs) So I want to come back to the book. You know, Breaking Through is much more than a story just about the vaccine and and pharma. It's really a book for communications communicators and leaders and with great lessons uh, and really concrete approaches to getting better. And one of them, which is close to my heart, is ditching corporate cliches in language. And I just think we've dug ourselves a big hole. And, and I cringe every day. I read comments from companies responding to an issue that are sound like they were drafted in the back room of a lawyer's operation somewhere, Sally. And, and not to in- insult our lawyer friends, but <laughs> cliches and, and thick language. Why is it so important to you that your team stay away from these cliches? And 
did you get your hands dirty in editing that kind of stuff out of, you know, uh, how, how do you do it when you have so much on your plate? Such a great question. And I love that we share a passion around this. <laughs> so first things first, let's get rid of all the acronyms. Um, oh, you know, God. nobody understands. Everybody in pharma loves to talk about LOEs. Okay, nobody knows what LOEs are. I mean, I know it's loss of exclusivity and it's something along the process between an innovative drug and a generic, but you just lose people immediately with those. And, you know, both of you guys have lots of experience in big corporations. They they just sprout from the mouth. Um, mm -hmm. these, so, so you got to be vigilant against those. The other thing I don't like is lazy phrasing, like things like, as you know, I'm like, well, if they know it, why are we telling them it? Um, yeah. it and, and it's it's CYA language, right. something like as as you know, which means which really means I told you before, but you probably don't remember. You know, like <laughs> I try to to cut out all of that. I also really despise adverbs. Greatly did this. Yes. You know, just say what we did, and the world will decide whether it's great or not. But us saying it doesn't make it happen. Now, those are the sort of my bugaboos in it. But the key to your question is, no, I don't edit everything myself. What I try to do, and it's really the purpose for the book, is to teach others. I mean, Pfizer's too big a company for me to possibly Absolutely. edit everything. I have a wonderful team, a large team, and I want them to know what I'm going to say before I say it so that they can do it themselves. And, and they do, and they have, and We've, we've worked hard on our language. Sometimes we, we slip back in old habits. We are blessed with an excellent legal division who also understands the need to communicate clearly. But it's simple things, Gary, like in a Q&A document, like we've all worked on, sometimes it's important to just start with no or yes. Or yes, wow. exactly. You know, yeah. and, and oh. then explain. <laughs> that drives me crazy. But... <laughs> when, when people have these securitist routes to answering mm -hmm. a question. Mm-hmm. Big believer in no or yes. Excellent. Well, that is so important. I'm a lover of language, and I love that part of the book, Sally. And, and it is, it, to your point, teaching some of those, I don't want to call them basic skills, but important and essential skills, I think is it humanizes a company if done consistently, and particularly in high visibility situations. Amen. So you also have some practical advice relative to apologies. You write that when you are managing a crisis, that your first question should be to ask if anyone has been hurt. In your mind, after that, what else do you think someone uh, should consider when responding to a crisis? Well, an apology is an extraordinary act, as you know, and to be done, it must be done right. It must be specific. It can't have hedging phrases like, we apologize if anyone was offended, you know, if, <laughs> if, if anyone was hurt. You know, it's kind of the non-apology apology. Sorry if you misunderstood me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if I offended you. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that's one piece of it. The other thing that, that I put in the book is my checklist for crisis. And my checklist is not perfect. It's just mine. What's important is that you have one that is yours. Because mm -hmm. the last thing you want to do in a crisis, you don't have time to write the checklist in a crisis. That's right. So, you know, you go through certain basics. For a company like Pfizer, we have to have a, an emergency room. 
I mean, we need a place um, where everyone is in the same place. Uh, we have to come together because it's just too hard and too time consuming to try to keep everyone in the loop. You know, we need to quickly have a list of questions. You know, as I mentioned, and I really want to applaud Mike O'Neill, I learned a lot from Mike, um, and I know you both know him, is when I first started in the business, uh, my first real communications job was at American Express, and there was a number of crises around data protection and data privacy and stuff. And I remember sitting in his office and he was just asking all these questions. And I thought, what is wrong with this guy? Okay. Um, he's just sitting, we need to give us orders. He's just asking questions. But I learned over time that Mike was right, that the first thing you have to do is really understand, make sure you understand, you know, test your understanding because you're going to write documents. You may be going on television you're going to be explaining and it will be compounding if on top of whatever your problem is, if you then don't give accurate information to the public. So, you know, I welcome people to, to use my checklist, but I really encourage you to use your, make your own that's, re- that's right for your company, your industry, and for you. Another element of the book that, that, that I love and in some ways almost wish there could have been more is you address cancel culture in the book and in 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 one very clean sentence you say when cancel cancel culture rises no one is safe Uh, you seem to be articulating a cultural paradigm that many of us as communicators fear and face Uh, tell us a little bit more if you can in terms of direct experience with cancel culture and how did you move through that experience? I, I certainly will. And I will tell you, I debated writing a lot more about <laughs> cancel culture. Yeah. Only then I was afraid I would get canceled. Okay. <laughs> 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 that I, I would wade into it into some in some naive way. And it's really worthy of a book in and of itself. But yeah. I, I, it seemed wrong to to dismiss it too, to not touch on it. And and I, you know, I looked at things like, for example, what happened with the organization Time's Up, you know, and there was complications with their interaction with the governor of New York and questions about the Time's Up people themselves. And I I just decided it was too murky and I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on any given one situation. So I didn't want to opine perhaps incorrectly, but I couldn't entirely let it go either because I feel strongly that I I believe in the words of Brian Stevenson, the great leader of the Equal Justice Institute, who says, we are not the worst thing we ever did as people. And um, I see lots of situations where people misspeak and then they're, you know, erased from public dialogue. And I wish for more opportunities for reconciliation, for learning, for people being able to say, I did this because I I misunderstood the times or I hadn't mm-hmm. properly um, learned. And, you know, I, I love books. And, and when I, I talk in, in my book about how when I was a kid, I loved Laura Ingalls Wilder. I was, you know, eight years old, but living in the Northwest woods with Ma and Pa and my imagination was, was flourishing. But this wonderful author has been uh, deeply criticized. And in some cases, her books were moved from libraries because the way in which she spoke about Native Americans was the language of the time, not the language mm-hmm. of our time. Right. And I, I wish that rather than remove her from public discussion, 
we could add a section to the book and say, you know, what what do we feel when we hear these triggering words, or how do we understand what what was wrong about those times? Mm-hmm. And you know, but but hopefully society can get there to that. Yeah. Well, that's a really relevant topic, of course, and will be discussed significantly over the next few years as we head into another presidential discussion in which content, culture wars, wokeism, all of those things are going to be at the forefront. I, I was an English literature major, and Mike, I, I know I mention this every week now. I, I bust on you because you mentioned your accounting background, but I, <laughs> I think this is like the seventh episode in a row I mentioned English literature. And a few years ago, I, I gave some remarks at a industry event, and I talked about Shakespeare and how it creates wisdom, right? Uh. <laughs> some some po- folks in the audience looked kind of puzzled. And and yet it resurfaces the other day where I see English as a major in colleges is diminishing significantly. And I think that's that's unfortunate because it, it, it gets to this idea of the kind of wisdom that you've displayed at Pfizer to ask bigger questions and to ask good questions. And going back to the Mike O'Neill. It's a good liberal uh, arts education. Exactly. <laughs> I'm rambling now, uh, Sally, but I, I want to come back. And I want to come back to one thing in your book that I got a kick out of, which is the importance of humor. And uh, we've talked about that on, on this podcast several times, and I felt is always essential in a communicator's toolbox. You got to have to know when to apply it, of course. And, and some people need to know when they're seriously not funny. <laughs> that uh, you have to coach them sometimes. How do you do that? How do you coach people, communicators and leaders who aren't naturally funny to use humor and levity? And why do you think it's so important in the work that we do? I, I love that you're asking me about this. Um, I, I debated whether to put humor into the book because not everybody gets it and it, it can be difficult, but I, I went for it because it is so important. And please know, I do not mean joke telling. I I cannot tell a joke to save my life. And, you know, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble with the wrong joke at the wrong time at the wrong place. Um, So I as as as, as our senator did at at many points. Yes, which is also chronicled in the book. What the senator meant to say was. Yes. Well, I'm sure you said that many times. Um, But. What I what we have four values at Pfizer: courage, excellence, equity, and joy. Now I challenge you guys to give show me another Fortune 50 company, particularly in biopharma, that has joy in their among only four values. And the reason for that is we we really wanted to be spirited in the way we are in the world, and not you know verklempt and and shut down and that this was important. And so we wrote some language about what does it mean to have joy as a company value? Well, in our case, what it means is we take our jobs seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. Mm-hmm. And we also said, and I think this is radical, that laughter is good medicine too. <laughs> the point of humor is that it's so humanizing. You know, my boss has a big loud laugh and when he's laughing, we all feel better. And, you know, I, as I say in the book, I, I struggled with this because I can be pretty serious and pretty intense. 
And I got feedback from my team that I needed to be more joyful and I needed to be more celebratory. So we did fun things. We have open mic night where we share our bloopers. And once you share your bloopers, you know, what's the most embarrassing thing you've done in the job? You know, leaving papers on the subway. You know, just everybody's done it, right? And that's the point. And we're all human and we're in it together and we put a lot of time into these jobs and let's have fun doing it. It sounds almost so so simplistic. I I wondered if I should include it, but I also feel it's deeply profound and, and really scarce. Humor is scarce. Yes, particularly these these days. Very scarce and quite important. Bringing joy into the workplace, boy, that's a great concept. I, I really, really like that. Well, Sally, this has been terrific. Thank you for joining us. The, the stories you tell are here on the crux, are even better in the book. So I encourage everyone to, to get a copy. It's called Breaking Through, Communicating to Open Minds, Move Hearts, and Change the World. And on March 28th, which is uh, just a little while from this taping, you'll be able to find the book wherever books are sold. Sally, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.